one of the nice things about hearing testimonies, I am on, right, yeah, uh, is, and I encourage you guys to do this, it's kind of a discipline when you hear stories, is to ask the question, where is my story intersecting with this person's? Because we're all different, and we have different stories, but we're also not that different. And we're all human beings made the image of God. We're all sinners being saved by his grace, whether we're approaching that, that storyline, considering that, asking questions about Christ, or on the other side of that, uh, just being blessed by it, kind of basking in it and, and remembering it. So if you hear anything at all in Emily's story or someone's else where you can, or someone else's story where you can say, that's, that's my story too, or maybe you're just asking questions about Christ and thinking maybe God is reaching me in that capacity where he's overcoming my moralistic tendencies or my facade-like spiritualities or whatever it is uh, to get more at the heart of what the gospel truly is, and that's about the love of God, or whatever it might be, do that. Uh, it's one of the best ways to, to listen to someone and to actually uh, worship uh, through something like that, too. So thanks, Emily. And Emily, by the way, is, if, I don't think Peter said this, but she is our, uh, did you, Peter? Our, uh, ma- our women's ministry leader and our main um, counselor for women, here, a lay counselor for women here at the church. So if you don't know Emily, you'll be hearing more from her and about her. She's been doing that for a while, but we just hired her in January part-time, too, to kind of come on staff a little more officially. So uh, if you ever see Emily at HiawathaChurch.com, that's the Emily uh, where <laughs> email was that uh, we're referring to. So, uh, well, my name's Chris. I actually haven't been here for four weeks. I'm one of the pastors here. I've uh, been on vacation for four weeks uh, with Aletha. We, uh, have, I have in-laws, Aletha's family in Tennessee. We drove to Myrtle Beach uh, for a week of that, which was terrible drive. <laughs> Three kids. We're used to flying with our kids, have these two-hour nice flights, but eight hours is... Our three-year-old at one point on the way home said let me out of this car, you know, it's just like, <laughs> she can barely form a sentence, and she's picked up that one, though, pretty quick, um, so dramatic, but uh, <clears throat> anyway, so good to be back, and we really did miss it here, I was telling some people this morning that it's, it's good for pastors to have a break, I think, from maybe the cycle of preaching, and, and just, you know, it's not just work for us, of course, but it is a job uh, to be here, but at the same time, like four weeks is I think we felt a little bit malnourished to just not being with our spiritual family. And that actually applies a lot to today's topic, which we'll get to. But to be with the church is to be where Christ is. Because Christ says, this is my, these are my people. This is my home. This is where my spirit resides. This is when the people who call me by my name and who believe in me gather. I am there with them, and I'm going to reside. I'm going to manifest my spirit, my presence within them. And, and I'm going to... And I'm going to bless them in that capacity. So to be where the church is, is to be where Christ is. And so to not be where the church is, is to kind of malnourish yourself a bit, uh, at least uh, long term. So I know I'm saying that in the summer too, where all of you are like, dude, I'm going away for a month after this. So thanks a lot. But, um, but it's still, there is something about that where we can have that idea of vacationing from church, which is a, an unhealthy thing to have that mindset. Vacations are great. They're gifts from God as well. But too long, that can be actually a, a, a bad thing too. So so really good to be away, really, really, really great and better to, to be back. So uh, we are going to dive in today. We are in a series right now called Big Questions. We, we did this about uh, six to seven, maybe even eight years ago, which almost all of you weren't here then, uh, so you probably remember that, but uh, a series where we ask the church just to ask us a text in or email or just uh, talk to us about questions that you had about theology or the Bible or Christ something about our philosophy of ministry here at the church, and, and if they were, we, we said if they were preachable, then we would preach them. So if they were something we could craft a sermon out of, uh, rather than just reply with a couple of sentences, which we're, we've been working on, if those of you are in that category, we'll still get back to you, but if they were preachable, that we would uh, craft a sermon out of those. But in this, since uh, early June, I believe, and we have another month of this or so until we move on to another series, which we'll um, announce here in a few weeks this fall after uh, Labor Day. So uh, today's question that we got has to do with spiritual gifts. This is the actual question. What are spiritual gifts and what role do they play in church life? So really great question that um, I crafted this calendar with the overseers uh, earlier this summer, and I've been looking forward to getting to this point all summer now. Uh, and we, we talked extensively about this. If you, if you were one of the people that were here five years ago, and we preached through 1 Corinthians which is one of the books of the New Testament that talks extensively about this. We, we did this in, I think, five or six, maybe even more, seven weeks. We had a class we did. It kind of complemented this, the, the, the preaching, the sermon series on gifts to kind of help people discover what their gifts were and, how to, and to discover how to use them in the church. And so if you want to consult those, they're on, our, they're on our website archived. But just understand that, you know, you could spend just weeks and weeks and weeks on this. And so we're going to give the 30,000-foot view and really approach it from this angle what are gifts, definitionally, 
and what role do they play in church life, but not talk about all the gifts, like what are they definitionally, or maybe focus on the miraculous gifts today, talking about healing and miracles. Do they exist in what capacity in the church? We might skirt that a little bit, but not talk about that as much today, or tongues, what's, what's up with tongues, and what purpose do they serve in the church uh, today as well. Great questions that the Bible does talk about, but we don't have time for all of that today. So I, I point you to us, ask us follow-up questions if you would like, or or back to that series if you would like uh, as well, just to, to uh, podcast that. But again, this is a question I've spent a lot of time, it's a personal thing for me too, uh, wrestling through my Christian life. Alith and I, when we were dating, uh, we talked a lot about this because we had some very different backgrounds uh, with this uh, issue, and so it was a lot of our just early dates <laughs> uh, were uh, over pizza and talking about spiritual gifts or something like that. And uh, w- now one thing I've learned just personally from the Bible and, and from experience is that it's really, it's probably true for a lot of things, but it's very possible to hold the idea of gifts too much and too little. Uh, too much and too little. And, and that's, again, true for a lot of things, but especially, I think, in practice with the idea of gifts. I've had people tell me that because I don't speak in tongues, I'm a lesser Christian, and look down on me for that. And I've also, maybe even just the next day or something, have also seen the belief that the gifts don't really exist anymore, that belief, uh, rob Christians of joy and in kind of a backdoor way, hold them back from a more robust involvement in the church. And personally, I've, at various points in my spiritual journey, have kind of leaned both ways. I've leaned, not quite to those extremes, but leaned both ways at various points. And so personally, for me, this is a a big uh, question too. So let me just lay out where we're at as a church. I'll speak for our overseers, but this is not something that we, you know, require. A lot of the questions this summer, we've said this, we require people to be at exactly to be a, a member here or anything like that, Uh, but our official position as a church is that spiritual gifts are a thing. They exist. Uh, The Spirit is alive in the church. He's convicting in regards to sin and righteousness, the Bible says. He's helping people. He's helping Christians. He's leading non-Christians to Christ, and he's gifting believers, and and so one of the big questions is why? Why is God doing that? The Bible says it, but what's the purpose? Isn't it enough that he's just saving people from their sins? And in one sense, we could say, well, that's the greatest gift, right? So can't you just stop? But he, he's giving more and more and more. He continues to give. And one of the ways he gives commonly across the church, the spectrum of the church, is, is to gift people with a manifestation of himself for the edification of, of other believers. So I'll get to the, the why here, more of the why in a second. But one additional question that I want to just raise here uh, as we go throughout the sermon is that I think really helps us get at the why that you don't really see unpacked a lot when these things are taught about in systematic theology texts or, uh, or various places. They're presupposed. This is not a novel thing. I'm just, just to be clear, nothing I'm saying is novel this morning, but it's still a question that's not really expressed explicitly a lot in reference to gifts. And that is, uh, how do um, spiritual gifts relate to the gospel of Jesus Christ? How do gifts relate to the core of our faith? The gospel, the fact that God became a human being to die in the place of sinners to wash them of their sins, to reconcile them to himself, and to save them from his own wrath, and in all of that, to love us. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The cornerstone. How, does, how do gifts relate to that uh, center, you could say, of, of our faith? And that's actually the best question to ask. Not just about gifts, any topic. We've been doing this all summer topically, but any passage of the Bible you're in to ask that question, where's Jesus here? Not just him, but him crucified. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2 2, that I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And he knew a lot. But he decided to know nothing ultimately. Or he's saying, I decided to focus so much on that that, it, that it's, it's as if I didn't know anything else. Because my message was so much focused on Christ and him, him crucified. So how do, how do we hold that idea up with this, with this idea that there are other doctrines, other ideas, other things taught in the Bible that relate to it? So asking that relationality idea is a really big, really big important thing theologically. And when we ask it in reference to gifts, I think it helps clear up a lot of the murkiness that can otherwise uh, surround the gifts and their practice in the church. So, with all that said, uh, let's just dive right in here. I'm going to start right at the top and ask that first question we posed and was asked of us, which is just what are they, definitionally, what are gifts, and we'll move into the role they play in the church and tie in the gospel to it 
as we go. Let's read from 1 Corinthians 12, 1, 4 to 7 and verse 11. So I'm cutting up the paragraph here a little bit for the sake of time. But um, in one of his letters to the Corinthian church, Paul addresses this because they wrote to him about it. And so he writes back to the church and says this in verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. So just stop right there for a second. This is actually a biblical question, which is really interesting. Not all the questions we got this summer, not to make you guys feel bad if it wasn't a biblical question, but not all of them were, but this is. So it's a question that the church kind of you know, asked, asked the apostle, and it was written in an inspired manner back into the Bible for us to be. But we should just kind of back up here and note that we need to know what this is about. It's, it's, it's not good to be uninformed about spiritual gifts. It's not a good thing. If you are, that's okay, but you shouldn't stay there. We should know what they are. We should know how they relate to Jesus. We should know the, the definitions of them and what role they play in church life, how to use them, how to use them healthily, and, and so forth. So verse 1 just says, Concerning the gifts, I don't want you to be uninformed. Verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So a couple things about this, and we'll, uh, we'll revisit it a little later on too, but Paul uses a couple of Greek words here. Uh, that I'm mentioning this to show you how they relate, because in English we, use the, we lose this, but Paul uses two Greek words for gift and for grace. The first is charisma, or charis, rather, which means grace here on the bottom, and charisma, which uh, means gift. And uh, so you can see how they are related. The New Testament authors actually, at various points in the Bible, will use these interchangeably. So to put that into English, they'll sometimes say, uh, and there were graces, rather than gifts, there were graces given to you. Uh, pieces of grace, essentially, dispensed to you by the, by the Holy Spirit because the words relate so much, but not just, this isn't just a linguistic thing, a semantics thing. This is a, a meaning thing or a spiritual thing. They are really tied together on a meaning basis. And so it's, refer, uh, it, it's led many, and we, we do this. If you were here five years ago, we did this a lot in 1 Corinthians, but certainly have since then as well, to refer to gifts not just as gifts, but as grace gifts. A lot of people will do this in writing and preaching and just com uh, commenting on it casually. We do this as well. Not just as spiritual gifts, but uh, gifts of grace or uh, gifts of God's uh, apportioned grace to, to the church. And which we explain further with this definition here. This is, uh, there are many great definitions of gifts, but this is one we've used at the church a lot. Uh, which are spiritual gifts are varied, lesser expressions of God's grace dispensed to all Christians by the Holy Spirit for the common good of the church. So they're varied, lesser expressions of God's greater grace. We'll talk about that later. To all Christians, it's impossible to, to be a true believing in Christ Christian and not have a gift because they're given to all. That's it. To each one and to all. That's phrase or those words are used multiple times just in this paragraph we read this morning. And it's for the common good of the church. So gifts are primarily for other Christians. They can certainly be uh, reflections of God's goodness to the outside world, and, and that's great. Uh, but they're primarily for the edification, the common good of other Christians, to build them up in, in the faith. And so we'll, basically I want to start, start there because we're, we're going to come back to all three of those kind of in different capacities as we go on. But at least have this idea, if you're new to this, you're maybe a brand new Christian, especially if you're, in those, uh, if you're in that place right now, and understand that it's impossible to be a Christian and not have a manifestation of the Spirit at work in your life. Might be unidentified, might be kind of in this brand new spot for you. It's fine. You're still figuring this thing out. We run into this all the time, and you're not alone if that's the case. It's great. We're here to help you. We'll talk about this at the end, actually. Questions to ask yourself in the context of community to help you identify what gifts you have. But, but with that said, you have one. It's impossible to not have the Holy Spirit, to not be spiritual in that sense of the word, and to be a Christian. Those things are inextricable. So today we're not, we're not going to look at all, like I said this before, but not look at all the different gifts themselves today, but just in case you're brand new to this, they are things, and this comes out list-wise in the Bible in multiple places, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, 
And then 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 are the, the longer lists. Romans 12 is kind of long as well. Uh, but there are things like healing, the ability to miraculously heal people, uh, and other miraculous ones, but also want things just like mercy, showing mercy, teaching, service, helping people. So just basic stuff like serving people and helping, administrating, leadership, and being generous and hospitable to people. And actually, in 1 Peter 4, all the gifts are boiled down into two categories, word and deed. So at least you have that. You just know that in 1 Peter 4, we'll reference this later, that Paul or Peter boils it down by saying some of you can speak about Christ, some of you can demonstrate in a deed-based, kind of uh, service-oriented way Christ. But in both, in both capacities, God gets glory, and the church is, is built up. So some are about words, some are about uh, deeds, as we kind of saw here in this short, short list. But all of them, to go back to the definition, are expressions of God's greater grace. 1 Peter 4.10, just to mention one, uh, one verse here of that passage I just alluded to, uh, says, this is helpful, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So Peter says here, using a gift, a spiritual gift, is like being a steward of God's grace. And this, again, is where it's really helpful, something not commonly talked about necessarily, depends on your background, but where it's helpful to understand that there are different types of divine grace. There's ultimate saving grace when Jesus dies for the sins of the world, and there are lesser subservient graces, commonly, like, like gifts, we'll focus on those today, but there are other things you can put in that category, lesser subservient graces, uh, like gifts, that serve the purposes of the greater, or the former. Like, aftershocks point back to the main earthquake, or like the ripples of water kind of moving out from the epicenter of the rock into the still lake kind of point back to that, that initial splash or that initial, initial rock. So, for example, another Christian serving us, and service is one of the gifts, like I said before, if that's a manifestation of the Spirit in the church, it's not just a physical benefit, but something that relates people back spiritually to the core of the gospel, the cross, in that it reminds us of how Christ sacrificially served us. It's one of the main words given to what Jesus did on the cross is service in the, in the New Testament. God served humankind by becoming like us to advocate for us and to die in our place. He had to become a human to die for us. He couldn't just remain God. He became like us. He condescended himself. And in that, he served us. Mark 10, 45. God, Jesus did not come into the world to be served by, by us, but to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. So it's clear that, that the service is not just he washed the disciples' feet or he, he looked out for the poor. The, the, the act of service is clear by giving his life, laying down his life as a ransom or a payment to buy people back from sin and death. So that's an act of service. And so a, a lesser grace, a lesser grace gift of service, a manifestation of the Spirit that's at work in the church. This could be any type of service. There are many types of activities, right, and talents and gifts. So it can look a number of different ways. When it happens, it's a whisper of that greater, uh, uh, in one sense, universal, not that all are saved, but kind of cosmic, universal, ultimate saving grace that happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. It, in my life, just watching Aletha be my helper so much, and it's helped me a lot in life, it reminds me of Christ helping me from my sin. I get the pleasure of working with a guy, uh, Spence, who is a giver and is gifted with generosity, and he gives, just gives, I'll show up to work and there's something on my desk. Like, what? It's like, Devro never did that. What's the deal? No, just kidding. <laughs> He's not here. Look at that. Unbelievable. But uh, if you want to love Spencer, too, just buy him something. He just likes to be loved that way. So just buy him, buy him something. It'll just, it'll just be, socks will be just blessed off there. So, um, but that reminds me of God's generosity to me because the Bible's clear. God gives and he gives and he gives. One, the best way, the ultimate way, the, greater, the greatest way he's given is in his son. He's erased your sin and mine. He's died for you and me. He's died for the church. And so a lesser grace gift manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the church, again, many ways that can look, is a whisper. It's a reminder of that, uh, that greater, greater grace. So... In that way, gifts are not just random manifestations of the Spirit, but ways in which we actually steward 
God's greater grace, to pull from 1 Peter 4. Amazing idea there and word. We actually steward the fact that God died for sinners 2,000 years ago. We steward it. We speak it. We can also show it and demonstrate it, just like Jesus did so much in his ministry and the church after him. We actually see this theme develop more substantially uh, in Ephesians 4. It's one of those passages. I'm not going to read the list of gifts he has there. He talks about pastors and prophets and teachers and other types of gifts there as well. But just to kind of read this passage that leads up to that list and unpack it, it's really confusing in one sense in how he, he quotes the Old Testament, but I'll explain it. In Ephesians 4, it says, there's, is one, speaking about the, to the church about the church, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when God ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Quoting from Psalm 68, 18 in the Old Testament. Then again, goes on to list what some of those gifts are, like a pastor and teacher and so forth. All right, so what, what's interesting about the way that Paul is using the psalm, because this is, and this is a loaded passage, of course, it's its, it's, its own sermon, but in verse 8, to use Psalm 68 here seems unnecessary, right? Kind of confusing. What's actually going on in the psalm? Why is he using this in reference to the church's experience? What's interesting about the way Paul uses it here is that Psalm 68, which is a psalm of David, a song of David, is praising God for military victory to Israel in the Old Testament, likely recounting the Exodus event where God's people were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt, later delivered out uh, under the hand of Moses, God through him and his brother Aaron. But then it specifically mentions, this is the the part he chooses to quote here in, in Ephesians 4, it specifically mentions the giving of gifts to men or to captives, to Israel, which in context refers to the spoils of war that Israel took out of Egypt as they were, as they were leaving. Just so you are clear on this, Exodus 12 back in the Old Testament talks about this. It says in connection with as they were just about to leave Egypt, it says, The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry for clothing, And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, this is the key, thus they plundered the Egyptians. So the Israelites were not just saved out. They, on their way out, they plundered. They they picked up the spoils on their way out. They even asked the Egyptians for things and God gave favor. And so they just got all this stuff from the Egyptians as they left. And so what what Paul is doing here is he's saying that those were gifts given to God on their way out in connection with their deliverance. And then what's further significant about that is that the spoils of war, so gold and other commodities, were what in part was used later to build up the the tabernacle or the tent of God's presence in the desert and later on the more permanent structure, the temple. And so they were saved, they got these spoils, these gold and other commodities on the way out and, and it was for clothing and so forth to kind of partially benefit them and point them back to what God did in Egypt but also to partly use to build up this place where God would say, this is my home. This is where I dwell. This is where you worship me. This is where I speak to you. This is where I protect you and camp around me and I will be with you. So it's what used to build up those things in a, in a, in a physical manner. So with all that in mind, By quoting Psalm 68 here and all that's wrapped up in that, in reference to the church's experience, Paul's essentially seen the events of Psalm 68 reoccurring now spiritually in the context of the church through Jesus Christ. So just put this in chart form here then. On on the left again, this is what Psalm 68's recounting happened earlier in history, but God saved Israel from their physical enemies, Egypt, militarily. Then he gave her the spoils of that war, so to speak, and he did it other times in her history, uh, their history as well, but primarily referring to the Exodus. And then for the, it was for their benefit, but ultimately to build up the temple of God's presence in the desert and, and then later on permanently in Jerusalem. So what Paul is doing is making a correlation. Uh, New, the New Testament talks about this in different, more kind of more cosmic, bigger picture spiritual terms. Jesus has done what God did for Israel in the Old Testament, just on a higher level. He has also exodus us out from something, just not the Egyptians, but our sin 
and death and separation from him. So he saves the church from their spiritual enemies on the cross. Then he gives the church spiritual gifts, namely, or uh, you could say other, uh, we call those spoils, for their benefit and to build up the body of Christ, the church, which is, the Bible says elsewhere, the new temple of God's presence in the world. This is why Paul's quoting this. And not all of it's mentioned in Psalm 68, but he's presupposing some knowledge about these things, but he's saying these things are recapitulating. They're happening again. The church is coming up out of Egypt, and we're picking up these spoils as we go, and God's giving gifts as we come up out of our sin, as we kind of enter into church life. We're gifted by the Spirit, and we use those gifts to build up this new temple, which is not a building, not even a church building. It's the people of God. That's what the Bible says. Jesus is this new temple of God's presence who then makes the church, he's the cornerstone of it, and builds his church up into this spiritual temple where God says, that's my people, that's my home. There's no more separation now between me and them. I've erased their sins so much where now I can not only dwell close, but I can call them my home, my house, my temple. It's a holy, the holiest place now is where Christians, messed up people who are just struggling in sin, but who are clinging for dear life to the life preserver of God's grace, I'm going to call that my home. Those are my people who I love dearly. I'm claiming them unto that and, and, and others as well. So the, the, the big thing to connect, there's a wider story here, but the big thing for today's purposes to connect are to see gifts as kind of a spoils of war uh, type uh, thing. And so by, by doing those things, Paul is doing a couple of things here by likening gifts to spoils. And I, and I like to see it as he's looking backwards and forwards in the story. So first he looks backwards in that by likening gifts to the spoils of war, he, he lessens the gifts in light of the greater gift, like we talked a little bit about earlier. So just an analogy here. Spoils of war are to mighty military victories as spiritual gifts are to the gospel. Spoils of war are to mighty military victories as spiritual gifts are to the gospel. So they look back. They are a reminder, right? They remind us of something that happened past tense that blessed us, that saved us, and that gave context to what the gifts, uh, or that, that the spoils or the gifts and whatever storyline you're on uh, do for us in the present. So, but they're lesser, right? Because if they are spoils, they're lesser. You don't have the spoils without the, the first military victory and so forth. Second, they look ahead and to the present and the future, to the building up of the future church. This is why Ephesians 4.12 says he gave gifts, and he tells why, for the building up of the body of Christ, which is the new temple of God. So both are really related. It's kind of like you're saying the same thing, but one reminds, you can I almost picture like an Israelite child or something coming out of Egypt and having this little gold figurine or something or, ch or chunk of some kind of commodity or material that reminded her and her future family of what God did in Egypt. Spoil of war, like a, a spiritual gift, spoil of the ultimate war that God waged for us kind of does the same thing. A spiritual gift, an act of service, an act of kindness, an act of love, an act of hospitality, a, a time of teaching or encouragement points back, right? Points back to where we were, our story that we used to be enslaved, that we weren't where God was, that God heard our cries and he came to our rescue, that he saved us from our sins. So gifts are meant, they're not stagnant. They're not just, they don't just sit there on, on their own. They relate to things that came ahead of time in the story. But again, then again, second, they look ahead to the building up of the present and the future church. But then the question, I want to make sure this is clear, because again, this is one of those questions that gets presupposed a lot I did a lot of kind of refreshing of myself on this matter this week, and it's very common to hear people say that the point of the gifts are to build up the church, and that's great. It's true. Ephesians 4.12, right? To build up the church, to encourage the church by, uh, by edifying them in, in, in the gospel in a variety of ways, word and deed. But the question of how is not always talked about. It's very rare, and it's presupposed a lot, and that's great. We, we all need to presuppose sometimes, but, but also not just assume that we're all in the same place with the knowledge of these things. So if the question then becomes, how do they build up the church? Then the answer is, as we've been saying, by being smaller measures of Christ's gift. And 1 Peter 4.11 gets at this really well. It gives a great in order that clause or conjunction that gives a clear reason. It says, be good stewards 
of God's varied grace in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The point is God getting glory, right, in Jesus Christ. And even that's kind of enigmatic, right? Well, how does that look and how does that work? How does God get ultimate glory and so forth? And so to be clear, and I'll, I'll start to wrap up with these two things in conclusion, to be clear, what do gifts do in the church? Because we talked about what they are definitionally and theologically in light of the gospel and, and so forth, but what do they do in the life of the church? And this gets really deeply practical and kind of immediate for us. This is where it starts to preach and say, what are you going to do with this? Because you can't, it's impossible for you to be here as a Christian and not have a gift and therefore to not sit under the encouragement of, of 1 Corinthians 12.1, which says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I want you to be informed and, and to glorify God with them. So there's this call to be proactive, right, and intentional in how we use them. So what do spiritual gifts do in the life of the church? The primary thing is they remind the church of the gospel. This is the point, and it cannot be missed. God loves to give. He just loves to give. Uh, he is like a father who gives one huge gift but then just can't help but buying something else on the way home from work the next day and saying here's another one and another one because he loves to give he loves to see joy in his children's face and it's just who he is we don't have to have tons of reasons for it we just have to know well there is a god and this is what he's like one of his core characteristics is he is a giver so like i talked about before gifts like the spoils pointing back to the exodus in the old testament gifts should remind us of how God is given elsewhere. And we see this all the time, right? It can point, when we have, like at Christmas time, when I give gifts to my kids, they're not ends in and of themselves. I want the gift to point back to how much I love them regardless of the gift. And the gift is just small. It's, it's a lesser grace, right, that I'm giving my kids. I want them, if it just stopped there, it'd be silly. It'd be kind of lame. It'd be if it was an end in and of itself, it wouldn't be a huge expression of love. It's a lesser kind of grace or gift. I want, Aletha and I want ourselves to be in the focus of our kids. We want them to know how much we just love them unconditionally. So it shouldn't be too much of a stretch for us to grasp this, not just from the Bible, but from experience as well. This is part of our storylines every day. We see gifts having, physical gifts, having this type of purpose as well. And in Romans 8, I don't have this on screen, but Romans 8 it says, if God has not spared his own son for you and me, how much more will he not give us all things? So he widens out past gifts, I understand, but gifts are a part of that. He's, he's, he's saying, if God's given the greatest, how will he not then also give lesser ones that, that relate? And so those smaller ones can and should be seen out as islands or stagnant things, things we're just able to do that we've worked for that God's not connected with but rather things he's just giving and doing and appearing in our life uh, to the end where he gets praised and the church is, the church is built up. It's almost like, I, I was thinking this week, like God's grace was just so earth-shatteringly amazing that it couldn't help but like he was just filling up a huge cup and it starts to spill over on the table, the spill being the gifts. Couldn't help but spill over into other lesser but amazing gifts of people just being able to serve and help others really well or to be generous on a whim or to articulate God's word well, or to be a really good encourager of people like Christ was to broken-hearted individuals like us, spiritually. So this then leads, I mean, to the second thing, which again is really related, but, uh, or the second aspect of this, of reminding us of the gospel, which is uh, God, it can remind us of God's generosity in a, broad, in a broad picture, but there's also a lot of specific types and varied graces here that are not all about generosity. So, and I have a list, you can actually go back one slide, that list of things I had in the bottom there, healing, these are all gifts, healing, mercy, generosity, hospitality, service, teaching, these are all things that God spiritually does for us first, right? He speaks to us, he serves us, he shows us hospitality by welcoming, back, welcoming us back to God through his blood, he gives his body, he, he shows mercy to people who don't deserve it, who are crying out for deliverance, and he heals us spiritually from our sin. All these things can be defined as happening on a higher, greater grace level, right? And so we have to ask that question, with whatever our gifts are, whatever's in front of us, and we think, I think that this is a way I just like to bless people. I feel like God does this in me. This is the way I like to encourage people a bit in the church. 
is ask the question, how does Jesus first do that for me? And how can that be a part of my prayer for how it's received in the, the beneficiary or the other Christian that I'm, trying, that I'm trying to bless? So again, this is how God gets glory the most. It's not going to be in your gift, your spiritual gift primarily. It will be in the fact that he's at work in you to show you and others what he did for you. He's at work in you in a lesser way to show you what he did for you in a greater way. Have to make that connection. Or they kind of remain murky and like, well, what's the point? Do we really need them? If we have this greater thing over here, let's just emphasize that. I'm telling you, by experience, it will remain murky and inapplicable to you if you don't connect them with the cross. If you don't see how Christ first did, and, and get captivated by how Christ first did them for you spiritually, it, it won't be as motivating to reflect them out or to speak them out in a different context at a later date. So first see that. And this is how he gets glory. So 1 Peter 4.11, if the gifts are to give God glory ultimately, if they are to, so that in all things, right, God will get glory through his son Jesus Christ. If this is the way he gets the most glory, then the gifts are again for this purpose. So whether abroad, just remembering God loves to give to you his son, he's died for you, or specific with, with these gifts. Connect them with the gospel. And then secondarily, what do the gifts do in the church? By reminding them, they build the church up. So these things aren't separated again as well. They're all connected. You can't make healthy a church without Jesus. It's silly. It's impossible to say that. So this is how we build the church up as we serve, we, we do deeds that whisper the cross or we speak and prophesy or proclaim or encourage or speak words in a variety of ways that more explicitly get to him. That's what preaching is about explicitly but those deed-based forms do it as well. And this is why we need each other, too. I, I always like to, I, I never try never to fail, to say whenever we talk about this, like in our intro class or something, too, that this is why you and I need church. Because the Bible does not make a, a, a distinction between a Christian, this is where it gets crazy, I know. Well, if you haven't heard this before, it might be just a paradigm-shifting thing, but let it be, is that if 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 you are a Christian, the where you are, Jesus is. Or, or better yet, when the church is gathered, that's where Christ, where Christ is. So you need another Christian, and other Christians need you because they need the Jesus in you. And they need to be made more healthy in him. There's no other way to get healthy than Christ, but Christ is so close to you, he's so manifesting himself in you in different ways. This is why we need the church. This is why Aletha and I felt malnourished the past four weeks by just not being here with you all. Not being in the context of a, a community that celebrated Jesus in word and celebrated Jesus in deeds. We're going to round the more concentrated manifestations of the Spirit as much. So we felt malnourished, and so that's why we're so happy to be back. We're thirsty for him. And so to say then that we, you know, we love Jesus but not the church is to say we don't need Jesus or don't love Jesus because you can't have Jesus without God's people because God's people are the temple, this new temple of his presence in the world is wherever Christians are gathered together. So think about that. And, and also, on a, on a practical level, you know, I, I pray that this is a prayer. Every once in a while, I give you, guys, give you guys the prayers I'm praying for you so you know that, but also so you can join me in praying these prayers. But every week I pray that, that every person who calls Hiawatha home, every Christian at least, in the church here, who constitutes the church, every week will ask at least once, how can I speak or demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ to another friend at Hiawatha Church? Or think about this. What if everybody in the church was doing that once a week? Crazy, right? Think how healthy we'd be. And we are. But like this is happening, but oh, it can happen more. It can happen more. I, th I thought of uh, Paul saying elsewhere in one of his letters, he actually says this a few times. He celebrates a church and then says, I urge you brothers to do so more and more. I urge you. Don't grow lazy. Don't grow complacent. See what you're doing? That's an that's a, that's a evidence of God's grace type thing right there. Keep on doing it more and more. So I think that one of the words for Hiawatha Church for us from God today is this is happening. People are identifying their gifts. There are manifestations of the Spirit around us all the time that point us to, to Christ. But then the question is, how can we do this more and more? And for those of you who have not participated yet as proactively, ask yourself that, how can I be a part of this? And if you are, 
Then ask, how can I do it more than I did last week? How can I speak or demonstrate the gospel? How can I speak or show mercy, speak or serve, speak or be generous, speak or be hospitable, speak or help, speak or sacrifice my, my time, my talents, my treasures for someone else like Christ has sacrificed his body for me? How can I do that once a week? And, and put that just at the top of your list. It's, it's a great, I get asked, Spencer and I get asked a lot as pastors, what am I supposed to do every day as a Christian? Because you guys keep saying it's not about doing anything. It's about believing the gospel. It's got to be something we have to do. It's a great question. And the answer, this is one of them, I think, is, well, there's one. <laughs> Just ask yourself that. Every day or once a week, do someone I know who's in trouble. Someone needs something. Or they, don't, they haven't even mentioned that or put that to words yet, but how can I use a gift? How do I like to bless people uh, spiritually with word and deed, and how can I proactively do that for the church here uh, this week too, which is, again, commonly misunderstood thing. Gifts are for if you're a part of this church, they're for Hiawatha. They're for Hiawatha. There's some minor exceptions to that, like the gift of evangelism and so forth, and what's all wrapped up in that, of course. But you need to be thinking every week about other Christians who need Jesus more, who are forgetting him. They've forgotten how good he is, and so they're living as though he's not good to them anymore, that his grace is not sufficient. And you might be the person that needs to manifest the Spirit, who the Spirit's going to use to manifest himself to remind that person that Christ is sufficient, that his blood has bought them back from their sins. He has served them. He has been generous to them. He has shown mercy to them. He's never going to yank that back like a carrot. It's a gift, gladly given to them. One of the ways we're reminded of this is through other believers, again, in word or in deed. So if you don't know, uh, maybe it's a brand new concept, and that's great if that's where you're at for you, but uh, wherever you are, a better question to ask, I think, I just found this, than what is my spiritual gift? That's kind of nebulous. Is, is to ask, how can I serve the church? Or how can I proclaim and demonstrate the gospel to others today? Or maybe, how am I inclined to bless people spiritually? When you come across that, that instance, if, you have, if you're there, as a, hope you are. If you're not, I invite you to that. But if you're in that place, how am I inclined to bless people? Is it with words more, like an email or an encouraging, just kind of casual conversation or something more formal, like I'm inclined to teach the Bible a bit more formally, I want training in that? If you're inclined to that or something more deed-based, like I really just love to cry with people <laughs> or I love to give, like Spencer does, uh, like love to give gifts, love to bless people that way or just helping, getting your hands dirty in a good way and just helping with someone uh, in a, at a you know, there's a time, I think, last year, was it, that Kurt Hagedorn, are you here? Kurt's, uh, oh, where are you pointing? Oh, there you are, you're behind someone. Where uh, Kurt, I think, on, on the table, our online community responded to like three plumbing requests and just said, yeah, I'll be there with my gear, you know, later tonight or something like that. And, and just, I wasn't even involved in that. And I'm just looking at this happen saying, I mean, Kurt is just whispering Christ in that moment through an act of service and helps because he has a talent. He has an ability to plumb pipe and he just goes and helps out helps out people. So that's another good question too is, what's your talent? What do you enjoy doing? That gets really simple quick, right? What do you just enjoy doing? What do you have a talent in? Some of you are gardeners or plumbers or accountants or home brewers or something. And you can, you can create something and help people with something to get a gift out of it or just the act of service. They want to, they want to be consulted on how to grow a vegetable garden or have a better lawn or something on a gardening level. You have expertise. That's not so much the gift as the act of service is out of that. So you're able to serve them in that moment and say, I can help. And then there's the whisper of Christ. And, it's, and sometimes it's so mundane, you guys, but it's so earth-shattering at the same time. I'm telling you. And, and I've seen people miraculously healed uh, from sicknesses before, but I feel like I see more long-term benefit when someone is just sacrificially, without question, served in the name of Jesus Christ, in terms of what that does for their heart, I think it does a lot more. I, I, this is my experience. It just does a lot more. So we can say, well, I want the miraculous gifts. Hey, that's great. Some people in this room probably have, you know, one out of every ten times you pray, someone just kind of miraculously healed. That's great. Praise God. God does still allow that gift to exist in the church. We've seen that. Uh, a lot of you have seen that. However, um, the greater gifts, the Bible says, are ones that are more explicitly about Christ, speaking gifts. And I would add on to that other gifts that just get more at the core of, 
of um, sacrificial service, what the core of the gospel uh, really is about. And healing's great. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying, I've just seen the mundane sometimes be used a lot more long-term in someone's life than the loud, the shouts. God's a God of whispers as well. And so the things that you do in life, um, they might seem mundane, but I'm, I'm telling you, they are shaking the foundations of the earth because you're whispering Christ in the mundane and him crucified. And there's no greater name, there's no greater power, and no greater love than he who died as a substitute for the prostitutes of the world, people like us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the gospel today. Thank you for the gospel in the topic, in and through the topic of spiritual gifts. Uh, we ask, God, that you just bless the rest of our gathering here today as we celebrate you and the cross through communion, another uh, demonstrated sign, a visual, of what happened uh, 2,000 years ago at Calvary. And uh, God, help us to sing in light of it. Help us to worship and eat and drink and pray and remember uh, in, in light of it. So this being the ultimate gift, God, all the spiritual gifts given, dispensed to us, point back right here to, uh, to what we're about to do. So um, we pray for that. Uh, be on our minds. Help us to be a profitable time. Help us to be learnful. But more importantly, just celebratory. Help us to effectively in our minds put the figurative pencils down, stop taking notes, and just rejoice that God is good, providential, he's sovereign in control, and he loves me. He loves me. And he showed that love through his son when his son died in my place. So i got to pray for uh, that and whatever else you'd like to do uh, during this time on a more specific level maybe. So we, but we give you this and we just hail you as king. Thank you for bringing us up and helping us to escape and exodus out from sin and dispensing lesser graces in our life as well. Help us to steward them well uh, as uh, Christians and uh, to use them to point back to you so you get more famous and we get more happy in that. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so um, I think as Peter said earlier, we're flipping our service around today. We usually have a preaching a little bit later in our service, but on the first Sundays of the month, we uh, centralize our service a little bit more around not just the sermon, uh, but or I, sh I should say the table here, remembering communion. So as I prayed and I kind of talked about a little bit earlier as well, just hours before Jesus' death, he gets very clear. One of the beautiful things about the New Testament is we don't have to start kind of uh, guessing or groping in the dark in terms of what happened on the cross because Jesus gets really clear. Hours before his death, he holds up bread and pours out wine, holds up a cup to his disciples and says, this bread is my body given for you and this cup, this wine is my blood poured out for your sins to establish a new testament or a new covenant in that blood. So in other words, what's just about to happen, I'm going to die, my body's going to be broken, my blood's going to be shed. Wrapped up in that is a new way of God relating to people based on this. It is like the mediatorial event or sacrifice or just thing. It's in a, a stipulation. There's no law. There's no be a better person. There's no do this or think this. It is God coming to dead people, calling into tombs and saying, Lazarus, come out effectively. And we do because we hear his voice and we know his voice and we're his people. So he's making us alive. But this is how... Death is overcome because Jesus is resurrected. Before that, it's how sin is washed. But notice, God does it all. And gifts are the same, spiritual gifts are the same way, right? We don't call them spiritual talents that we've worked hard at developing all of our life by going to school for 20 years. They're spiritual gifts, right? Given. Gifts are given. They're not earned or even expected. They're just given. Given, given, given. And so, but it's the same, especially with this greater grace that all other graces are fall subservient to. This is given to us. And so the, Christ then calls the church, this is one of the ordinances or sacraments that he calls the church to do on a very on a regular basis together uh, to primarily remember him. It has that kind of spoil of war thing, you could say, and that it points back to the great event, the great exodus, the great escape from sin and death that he made possible away in the desert, came to our rescue. And so when we eat, we say, this is my spiritual nourishment, it's my spiritual food, it, it's everything for me, and I'm re-believing again in him and casting myself upon him by taking this in connection with other people of God who also believe and who know me and who help me along in my spiritual journey by pointing me to Christ with their gifts, with their word and deed gifts as, as well. So I want to invite all of you to participate if you're a believer here today. We, don't, uh, we practice open communion, which means you don't have to be, uh, be a, a member here at the church or any church but just that you're a true believer in Christ uh, as the scriptures 
uh, talk about, that you truly believe he saved you from your sins and that he's sufficient for you and that uh, you're not attempting to save yourself through any type of moral goodness. But if you just fall on your face before Christ, and if you're not a Christian today, we invite you just to believe. Don't come messy to the cross. Don't, don't perform. Stop the charade. And just lay down your crowns and all your trophies and all the good things you thought were kind of to your credit. Lay them down and look at the blood shed on that bloody body at Golgotha or Calvary on that hill 2,000 years ago and say, that's what gets me to God. That alone. If you believe that, you're a Christian. Just come down. He loves you. He wants you to come and then at that point, I'll be up front, and Spencer and other, uh, I think of our elders, maybe Jesse and some other people, we'd love to talk to you about that, and then we'd love to invite to communion today, too, as well. But, uh, but again, to be clear, Christ said this is only for the church uh, to do as a form of remembrance uh, in terms of what, uh, what type of Savior he is for, for the church. So there will be people up front to pray as the band plays through about uh, four or five songs, and we'd love to pray for you, too, so please make that a part of your worship uh, today if you if you would like. Uh, we'd love to pray a general blessing over your life or something specific if you have at, uh, at the same time. But again, very open time. Come down the center aisle anytime during those songs and kind of cycle back and uh, with someone, uh, yourself, uh, some friends, and uh, any, use the front pew if you'd like to, but very open time of worship and communion. So anytime during that would be great. But we'll invite the band up and I'll pray one more time and uh, we'll get started. God, thank you so much for what communion symbolizes, uh, what this, these next few minutes are going to be about. And uh, really, it is about remembering uh, what you've done for us. Thank you for looking upon lost sinners who weren't looking for you. Thank you that our relationship with you is not based on us reciprocating love. Uh, it's just based on you showing love to the faithless. Uh, we were dead in our sins, the Bible says. But God, being rich in mercy, uh, made us alive together with Christ. So thank you, God, that you are in the business of raising dead things. Uh, not making good things kind of a little bit better or great, but taking dead things and making them alive through your son. That has to be by grace, because dead things can't do a lot of good things in the world. Even if they could, it would never be enough. So thank you, God, for gifting yourself to us, giving, 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 and giving some more, and doing it not out of obligation, but because you desire uh, to glorify your name and to benefit lost sinners that you created who are in your image, who you love and who you want to be in a further image of your son by being saved. So um, God, purify us. Help us to focus on you in song and in communion here and in prayer uh, these next few minutes. And uh, again, just get more famous and help us to leave more, more at peace in you than when we walked in. Uh, in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's stand as